the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday, and we're in the same time, same station, 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. And that means we can take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever's on your heart or mind, we'll do the best that we can. If you didn't hear the original announcement, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And what we do every day for an hour at 4 o'clock, every weekday at 4 o'clock, is try to help you find the answers to your questions. Hopefully you'll fall in love with God's Word and you'll learn to dig those answers out for yourself. You can call us at 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Um... Or you can use the free KSLR, uh, I'm sorry, you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Or you can call us by using the free KSLR mobile app by just hitting one button. It says call now and you'll be connected directly to the studio. That's the safest way to um, drive and call at the same time. One more time, 340-9585. We don't have anything going on today, so all I need to do is get to the questions. The first one comes from Bruce on our mobile app. Why did Saul change his name to Paul as opposed to Abram, whom God named Abraham, with such a dramatic calling and mission, which Paul was called to? I would have supposed God would have named him. Um, Bruce, we don't have the answer to that question given to us in Scripture. You know, when uh, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, it meant something. When um, uh, God changed other names, uh, there was a reason. When Jesus changed Peter's name or Simon's name to Peter, uh, he had a reason for it. We don't have the reason. Um, given for the name change to Paul. Now, here's um, what I suspect is true, but it's it's um, not something to be verified in Scripture. Um, Saul, of course, thinking he was really something, a Pharisee of Pharisees, faultless in terms of righteousness. Um, I think he took the name that most fit him after his vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul means little. We have uh, had a lady in the church for many years who used to call Paul La, Polita. Um, and it's just little because Paul is little. Well, that's what Paul said. What he, what he understood after seeing Jesus, the man who was once big in his own eyes, the one who once was on a mission he thought from God, um, saw how little he was. I like to call it the smallness of who we are compared to the bigness of who God is. So, Bruce, that's the only answer. But this isn't uh, uh, an answer that we're given in Scripture. Uh, so all we can do is understand um, from the, what we know about the heart of Paul um, why he would have done that. And that's just the best guess that we can give. There is no other way. 
You know, one of the things that we don't have to worry about is we all have a new name in heaven. We don't know what it is, but when we get there and we're called it by that voice that sounds like many rushing waters, we'll know that it's us. But Jesus has a new name for all of us. I can't wait to get to heaven and have my new name. 340-9585. Let's see if we can get some calls today. It's always more interesting when you call. Here's a question from Riley. He says, Pastor, on in debating unbelievers, how can I be sure to get my points across? Um, Riley, I don't think that we can. And, and if you've listened to this program for any length of time, you know that I'm not a fan of debates. I've been asked to debate people, and I just think, what's the point? We're told not to be quarrelsome. Um, um, so I'm just not a debate person. And I think when believers are debating unbelievers especially, or even believers debating believers about points of doctrine. Excuse me. Um, I think we have to really be careful to remember what Jesus said, to let our lights so shine. Not, not to debate, not to argue. Second Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24, says this. Uh, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, this is verse 25, Riley. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. You see, that's what any discussion that we have with anybody should be focused on. It's not about presenting your points or your arguments and then counter, countering somebody else's um, um, arguments. It's about winning their heart. And we humans, we like to debate, we like to argue, we like to be declared right. We like for people to see us as knowing something. But in relation to the question a few moments ago from Bruce, that was who Saul of Tarsus was. He became Paul. He became little in his own eyes. And I think, uh, Riley, we need, many of us, we need to become smaller in our own eyes. I am just not at all and never have been a fan of debates. I don't think it makes a lot of difference. And it certainly tempts us to get in our flesh. Um, it's not our job to get our points across. That's the Holy Spirit. There's no one else that can do that. So what we do is declare, rather than defend our faith, we declare our faith. And what somebody wants to do with that is between them and the Lord. So Riley, I hope that uh, answers your question, at least from my perspective. I know it's not a very satisfying I know it's not a very satisfying answer because you wanted to know how to win those debates. The point is that there's just no real value in doing it. Here is another anonymous question. Pastor Ron, what is your opinion of home fellowship Bible studies? Uh, let me talk out of both sides of my mouth. Anonymous, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Bible studies whenever and wherever. If friends and neighbors want to get together, even people in the same church, and many churches have home fellowships, um, if they want to get together and study the Bible, that's never, ever bad. But here's the problem with home fellowship Bible studies. Too often they're led by the most charismatic personality in the room rather than the one called by God or the one who's gifted to teach those Bible studies. You know, we want to have our opinions. We want to have discussions. I've told this story before, but it's been a long time. Uh, right after I got saved, I was going to a church in Ontario, California, just a little church, and they had home fellowship groups every night or every Sunday night. And and I never missed an opportunity to study the Bible. I mean, if, if I could be there, I was going to be there because that's how hungry I was for the Word of God. And I remember... Uh, the particular night I went to this home Bible study, um, the, the the study was in John chapter 2, where Jesus turned the water into wine. And what I found happened, and it was really two people in the Bible study, is all they ended up going to talk about 
and, and even argue about was why would Jesus turn something good, water, into something bad, alcohol? And there was no Bible study taught that night. It was a waste of time. There was zero value at all. And everybody wanted to have an opinion, again, particularly two people who kind of wanted to debate the issue between themselves and show everybody else how smart they were. When in reality, all they did was demonstrate that they didn't know anything at all. So I'm, I'm in favor of the Bible being studied, but, but whenever there's a group of people, there has to be somebody called by God, given the gift of teaching, in order to facilitate that Bible study. It is not a Bible study. People just read it and then talk about well, what they think it says to them. Remember, the Bible study is what does the Bible say, what does it mean, and what does it mean for me? How can I use it? on that particular night. So, Anonymous, we have not done that here at Calvary Chapel. We've not had the home fellowship Bible studies for that very reason. As a pastor, I feel obligated to protect the, the, the people that the Lord has entrusted to me. And uh, honestly, we don't let anybody teach the Bible in a public forum at all until we've gotten to know them, until we trust them, until they've demonstrated their hearts uh, for Jesus, for the church, for me, for service. And then when they've done that, then God usually opens the door. We have, I say that we haven't had home fellowships, but I'm guessing right off the top of my head that we've got, I've got uh, eight staff pastors and probably nine or ten women who in some place or in some form teach Bible studies. Um, with with pretty good sized groups of people coming, but every one of those people, I've gotten to know them. I've learned that I can trust them. I've learned that there's consistency doctrinally, so that we're teaching the same thing, so that we're not confusing the sheep. You know, I I teach one thing on Sunday, and then in the home fellowship they teach something else. So we want to be consistent so as to give that consistency and that strength to the people who are being fed. It's very, very important. How can two walk together unless they agree to do so? Um, that principle works very well in the idea of teaching. I don't want um, me telling somebody that, that Calvinism is wrong and then having somebody else on a midweek Bible study uh, telling them that it's okay. I don't want to talk about a pre-trib rapture of the church to have somebody else decide that they've become post-trib or pre-wrath or mid-trib. I want our people to have that consistency in home fellowships, Bible studies. Anonymous makes that difficult. So I hope that makes sense to you. Here's a question from Nelson. I love this question, Nelson, because this is one of my um, favorite illustrations. Um, Nelson says, can you tell me how to understand I'm sorry, can you tell me how to understand Romans chapter 12, verse 20? Let me read it, and then I will. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, when we read that, Nelson, and we're talking about an enemy, um, heaping burning coals on his or her head sounds like a really satisfying thing to do to our flesh. Oh, I'm going to get them, or God's going to convict them, or something. God's going to convince them I'm right. But remember the context that Paul is using is in doing nice things. Now, all Paul is doing in Romans 12:20 is quoting Proverbs chapter 25, and that's where Solomon says in verse 21 and 22, "If your enemy's hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink." And then he says, "In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you." So, um, almost a word-for-word quotation out of Proverbs 25. The idea Proverbs makes it really clear, Nelson, is to do something nice to win your enemy by love, to win them to Jesus's side, not yours, but to win them to Jesus's side by loving the unlovable, by being kind. So if somebody who hates you is hungry, you give them food to eat, you're doing something nice. Well, in the same way, 
if you keep burning coals on his head, Jesus is going to reward you. Now let me explain the burning coals because it's really important that we understand it. In a pre-nuclear world, there's nothing more viable than fire. Nothing. And in fact, the fire was carried most often like water in the ancient world by women. You had these big, um, um, for lack of a better term, bowls on their head, and they would, they would carry hot coals. And that way, if somebody needed a fire, and there was somebody carrying this bowl of hot coals, they could say, oh, can you help me with a, with a coal and so I can start a fire? And of course, the answer would be, yes, I'll help you, and, and the fire could be spread. So th those bowls were carried on the top of their heads, just like water was carried on the top of a woman's head. It was a good thing that you were doing. And so that's what Paul is telling us to do in Romans chapter 12. He's telling us to do good things to our enemies. Jesus said that we're to love our enemies, we're to do it for him, and we're to do it for his glory. And that's what he's telling us to do here. So that's what he's saying. Heaping burning coals is not doing something hard or bad to them. Instead, it's doing something really, really nice for them. Imagine when somebody had no heat and it was cold in the winter. And they'd knock on your door and say, do you have any coals that I can have to start a fire? And you'd say, yes, I can do it. It's a nice thing. Well, Paul is telling us, Jesus through Paul is telling us, to do those good things, nice things, even to our enemies. If we only do good things to people that love us, what are we really doing? It's not difficult at all. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, another good question, this one's from Cheryl. She says, I hear Christians saying things like, God spoke to me or God spoke to my heart often. How reliable is that? Cheryl, it's not very reliable. Now, I'm going to say this, and it always upsets people who are um, more of the charismatic bent, but I, but I want to remind you that we here at Calvary Chapel are a charismatic church. I believe very strongly in the gifts of the Spirit. And I also believe very strongly that there are times God speaks to my heart. Let me give you an example. It was March 4th, 1994, when the Lord spoke to my heart and said, begin praying for the people in San Antonio, Texas. Now, I couldn't validate that in the Word of God. How do I know that God is the one who spoke to my heart? Uh, he gave me a vision. He called me later to start a free school. He called me later to start a free uh, doctor's office, multi-medical. Um, he, he called me. We've been talking a lot last week, and I talked a lot about it yesterday. Joy of Jesus. How do you know those things? Well, um, two ways. One, I take the time. I take the time to spend time with God. I can make my request known with a grateful heart. At the same time, I can hear his answers to my prayers. And I believe with all of my heart that if we've got questions to ask God, that we ought to wait and hear the answers. So when I say God spoke to my heart and told me to come to San Antonio, um, I can't validate that in, in using the word. So how do I know? Well, I know because God provided the opportunity. God opened all of the doors. That doesn't mean we can know God's will by open door, close door policy. That's really not good. We, we, we're not to throw out fleeces like Gideon threw out fleeces. But we have to take the time. Now, you want reliability, Cheryl. The only way to be reliable is to know the Word of God. So often when I hear people say God spoke to my heart, I'll give you an example that happened not too long ago. Somebody told me that uh, they were going to file for divorce. When asked, do you have any biblical grounds for divorce? The answer was no. But I think God's okay. I think that's the way the Lord is leading. Well, we know that's not reliable because that contradicts what the Bible says. And that's the only reliable word that we have that is never wrong. So we've got to know the word so that we can discern the difference between, is that what God was saying, or is it just what I wanted to hear? Or in some cases, 1 John chapter 4 says, um, test the spirits because not every spirit's from God. It means there are other spirits putting 
messages into our brains and into our hearts. A week from tomorrow night, I'm going to be doing our last study in Second Samuel. And Satan, we're told, um, incited David to number the troops of Israel. Uh, of Israel. So we know those demon spirits are always screaming at us. So when somebody says, God spoke to my heart, the first thing that you need to do is verify that against the word. Does it suppose the word of God? Check it out. Make sure. Now, if it's something like me coming to San Antonio, you can't validate it in the Bible, what do you do? You say, Lord, I'm willing. I'm your servant. Um, I'm going to, this is just an about number here, and it probably doesn't make any sense. It's probably not that close to accurate. But Cheryl, I think, I'm going to be very general, I think there's been about 20 times I've been a Christian for 27 years. There's about 20 times when the moment the Lord spoke to my heart, I knew it was Him, without any doubt. It lined up with Scripture. It was about something very specific. It was, it was answering a desire in my heart or, or answering a question. And, and those things are so valuable. Having said that, 20 times or so, every day, I go out with the Lord and say, Speak to my heart, Lord. You know what I need to hear. I know what I want to hear, but, but you know what I need to hear. And if there's anything that you want me to hear, or you know I need to hear, then speak to my heart. Now, if I do that every day, and only 20 times can I say for sure that God told me, then I have to be really, really careful. One other thought. I ask the Lord to speak to us when we're on vacation, vision for the church, things like that. Uh, I really, really am slow. To share those things. I need to be convicted so deeply in my heart before I say God said. And never, never, Cheryl, should we say God said until we're sure. Hope that makes any sense. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Terry on line one. Terry, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Terry. Can you hear me? Oh, there you go. <laughs> I can hear I can hear you great. Yeah. Okay. Um Yesterday, I was listening to your broadcast yesterday, and you mentioned um, a series of books, one particular book called Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Uh-huh. Um, I have just, it's funny because I received, a, a, I received this book as a gift about a month ago, and I just began reading it, and then lo and behold, your comment comes out <laughs> on the radio. And I'm wondering what you what you find uh, wrong about uh, this particular book. Okay, I can do that. You know, uh, uh, Terry. One day I walked out to our our foyer, our little foyer, and and saw a stack of little books. And I went over there, and it was a whole bunch of of Jesus calling books. And I almost thought. Oh, how did these get in here? Um, I've got about three minutes, so let me answer the question. Jesus Calling is a book where uh, what Jesus is telling this author, Sarah Young, um, is placed on an equivalent level with Scripture. This is Jesus speaking to her, telling her what to tell us. She's acting as a prophetess, which she's not. There are none. Um, now, I, I'm not... I, I, I want to separate intent from result because I don't know this woman I don't know that that's her intent all I know is that when she says this is a way to become more intimate with God this is a way to hear from God this is a way to speak to God and when she puts that on the same level as the word of God then you've got a, 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 a tension that can't be resolved um, she is suggesting in that book that she has new revelation um, this is the way God wants to speak to us. This is the way God wants to become more intimate with us. And what she's really saying is that the Word of God's not enough. You know, we read our Bibles, we read our Bibles, but God wants us to go deeper. You cannot go deeper, Terry, than God's Word. 
You simply can't go deeper than God's Word. And so that's the biggest danger, the inherent danger. And the reason that I am so opposed to it is because we have an entire, uh, it, it is largely a book that appeals to women, not exclusively, but certainly overwhelmingly, the majority of, of, of the book's proponents are, uh, are women. And we got a whole now generation of women, and this, this book has been fabulously successful, who are now operating according to their emotions, according to their feelings, according to what they think God is saying to them, and it's drawing them away from the Word of God. So this is a book that ought to be avoided at all costs. Um, there may be something in there that, that, uh, that, that resonates in your heart, um, but it's not worth the challenges, it's not worth the opportunity that the enemy's going to have to try to start speaking, masquerading as God. And we want to be careful of that. We want to avoid anything and everything that we can. So Terry, I hope that helps. If somebody bought you that as a gift, uh, I wouldn't even return it to him. I'd just throw it away and just say, I, you know, I've got my Bible. We don't need anything else. If I could make people read their Bibles, I can't. But if I could, I would. Because that's all we need. Why would we want something written by anybody other than Jesus himself? We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program i'm just thinking during the break how fun this is uh, i so appreciate you guys listening and and calling uh, with your questions it's, it's just a great life Here's a question from Rita. She wants to know, is being slain in the spirit biblical? Rita, the answer is no, no, a thousand times no. Um, the spirit, one of the gifts of the spirit is self-control. And when people tell me, well, I was knocked down and I, I had no control over what I was doing or saying or something, I couldn't get up even though I was trying to get up. Um, I'm not denying that the power is real, but the source of the power is not God. This unbiblical practice of slaying people in the spirit is always and only practiced by false teachers. Remember that when I get to the next question? It's only being practiced by false teachers. It's designed to give people like what I call a goosebump experience and say, wow, God was in that place and I was knocked over and had no power. That's not the Holy Spirit, Rita. It's not the Holy Spirit. So by the word of God, understand that you are in a bad church, a false teaching church, and you're exposing yourself to demon spirits if you participate. Self-control. Galatians 5 is a fruit of the Spirit. 340-9585. I told you remember that question when we come up with the very next question. This one it was sent in to us by Adam. And he says, do you think Benny Hinn is saved? And what about Kenneth Copeland? Um, whether or not they're saved, Adam, I don't need to know and you don't need to know. Uh, here's what I can tell you. They're terrible, terrible false teachers. Now, I can read Jeremiah 23, and I can read Second Peter, um, um, the, the horrible, horrible prophecies of what happens to false teachers, and I can make a reasonable guess. But remember, Jesus said we're not to judge hearts and minds. But here's what I can tell you. Every time, every time that Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland opens their mouth with a microphone in it, they're lying. Every time. Both of them have gotten fabulously wealthy on the backs of people that they're supposed to be loving and sacrificing for. Um, but they're charlatans. 
false teachers. So that's the best I can do. Let's go to the phones. We've got Timothy from Seguin on line one. Timothy, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on uh, something that came up yesterday on your show. Um, okay. They talked about um, problems with uh, adolescents, teenagers, and stuff. And I've always been abused by the, the passage that um, that raise a child in the way he should go, and in the end he shall walk in the ways thereof, which doesn't mm -hmm. mention anything about those in-between times. <laughs> those are the hard times. <laughs> there, there is the promise that, that in the end they shall walk in the ways thereof because they'll realize the truth by what they live through. So that always yeah. amused me because you can learn as much about what's omitted as by what's, what's actually written. Yeah, that's true, Timothy. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I will add this to you. Thank, thank you, Timothy. I will add this. Uh, that's not a promise. I told you uh, in, in the show yesterday that it's a general rule. It's a, well, this is going to work out this way most of the time kind of thing. Th those are the wisdom books, the poet, uh, poetical books. And, and we don't make doctrine. This is similar, Timothy, to uh, Acts chapter 16, where uh, Paul tells the Philippian, ginger, uh, Philippian jailer when he says, what do, what do I have to do to be saved? Believe, and you will be saved, and you and your whole family. That's not something that is, is to be taken literally, because we know, scripturally, that people have to make their own choices. It culturally meant a lot when Paul said it, because in the ancient world, uh, it was a, a powerful patriarchy. Um, uh, whatever the husband believed, the wife believed, and the children believed. That's, it's like we say, well, I'm a Christian or I'm a Muslim. Well, at some point, everybody has to make their own decision about what's true and what's not. And let me uh, point out, Timothy, that you're absolutely right. There are a whole bunch of kids that fall away, and some fall away for most of their lives and return. But sadly, there are some who uh, die without ever returning to the Lord. Um, um, all we can do is do the best that we can, but the one thing that we can't do is expect that God is going to force somebody to believe. They have to make that choice of their own free will. They have to make that choice of their own free will. You know, I have unsaved family, and I pray for them daily. And, you know, my prayers range from, God, do whatever it takes. And for a parent especially, that's a hard thing. Because instantly we conjure up images of, of, of trials and tribulations and great pain. You know, oh, but I don't want them to go through that pain. Um, what I do is say, Jesus, you're there. They know what's true, and they've chosen to reject it, but you keep chasing them. And one of the things that we have to remember, especially as parents, is that Jesus is the one who loves them unconditionally. Jesus will keep chasing them to the end of their days. And I'm convinced that's why there are so many people who on their deathbed give their heart to Jesus, because he chased them. It's not because of Proverbs what it says. Thank you, Timothy. Great comment. Natalie says, would you talk about miracles and why we don't see them like they did in the times of the Bible? Natalie, I'd be happy to a couple of things. Um, uh, miracles require people who are committed to God, committed to walking in personal holiness, um, God's servants have to pursue holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, the Bible tells us. The other thing is, miracles have a different purpose now than they did in the Bible. When Jesus was walking, we're, we're just now seven chapters into the Gospel of Luke, and there's already been more miracles than I can even count with, with huge multitudes of people. But remember, those were signs and wonders. Signs point to something. Those were miracles. They were signs pointing to Jesus. Jesus was demonstrating that just what Isaiah said in chapter 35 and chapter 61, when the Christ comes, he will do these things. Well, I'm doing those things. He did it to help them identify him as the one they were waiting for. Now, in the time that we live in, 
We don't need those signs. Jesus has come. He's died. He's been resurrected from the dead. He's still alive. And so we don't need a sign pointing to Jesus. My goodness, in our world, especially in the West, you can't miss the reality of Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful about demanding miracles. Jesus said a evil and adulterous or a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. We should be seeking after Jesus because the signs have already pointed to him. So I think that's why we don't see them like in the Bible, the, the biggest reason. But there's another reason. I think if you look at what goes on in churches today, Natalie, I think what you see is anything but the way Jesus intended church to be, and he's the head of the church. You know, we come into church and we want to be entertained or we want to get goosebumps or our whole relationship with Jesus is based on what he can do for me. Well, why would God answer those miracles or those prayers for miracles? So I, I think that the lack of commitment to holiness, I think a lack of a genuine fear of God, those are the reasons that we don't see miracles like they were in the Bible. The miracles of Jesus, the miracles of the apostles, were always to point to Jesus Christ. Now let me say one other thing, Natalie, and then I'll go to the next question. There are places in the world where those kind of miracles are happening, even as I'm doing this radio program. There are third world countries. There are places that are immersed in Islam. Uh, there are places where just being a Christian or converting to Christianity puts your life in jeopardy. And in those environments, miracles are seen, visions of God, visions of Jesus. And miracles happen rather routinely, just like we would assume they did in the book of Acts. Wherever there's the least light, there's going to be the greatest supernatural power. And the reason for that is because those people need to be pointed to Jesus. You and I, we don't need to be pointed to Jesus. I'm repeating myself now. But Jesus is everywhere. We've got his word. And all we have to do is seek him with all, our whole heart. And we'll see power. It might not be the kind of power we see when lepers were cured and blind people could see and... The dead were raised and demons were cast out. But they're miracles nonetheless. Thanks, Natalie. I appreciate that. 340-9585 for your live calls if you're local in the area. Here's a question from Deborah. She says, my friend is a Christian, but she's doing something that's wrong. She seems to be getting farther away from Jesus. How can I help her? Deborah, this won't sound like you're doing much, but believe me, it's the most you can do. Pray for her. She's in a spiritual battle for her life now. And if you see her getting farther away from Jesus, she seems to be losing that battle. So what you need to do is constantly bring your friend before the throne. That's the most important thing you can do. The second most important thing that you can do is to make sure that your relationship with Jesus is so close that she can't miss it that she can't miss it. She's going to need somebody who's walking with Jesus when things get really bad for her. And make no mistake, things are going to get really, really bad for her unless she repents. And finally, the third thing is tell her that what you see is breaking your heart. And this may cost you a friend, but that's okay. You talking to her has got to be worth, her, her, her soul has got to be worth you risking the friendship. So what you do is you say to your friend, I, 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 my heart is breaking because I see you walking farther and farther from the Lord. And you know that what you're doing is wrong, but you don't change it. And she may say, don't judge me. The Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged by God. Say, you know what? I'm not judging you because you know I love you. 
but I am judging what I see you doing. The Bible says this behavior is sin. And then you can look at her and say, honestly, how do you think you're doing with the Lord? And the Holy Spirit will use that. And then every time you see her, you're going to go through the same thing to the point where she will either repent or she will decide that she doesn't want you for a friend anymore. But again, Deborah, it's so valuable, so valuable to have a friend like you who won't let a friend alone. Hard things. Janice says, uh, Pastor Ron, what does it mean that we're not to lay hands on people suddenly? Let me read it, um, Janice. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. It says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Well, in this particular case, the laying on of hands refers to appointing leaders in the church, elders or pastors more specifically, um, and, and you're not to do that too quickly. Uh, people need to be tested. First Corinthians 4.2 says it's required that every man, I add women, given to trust by God, must prove faithful. So, you know, when I was called to be a pastor six months into my, my Christian life, um, I didn't go out and start pastoring. There's a whole series of tests and there's a whole series of things to learn. And if somebody, if, if I'd have gone to a church and said, you know, I'm called to be a pastor, and somebody would have said, you know, we're looking for one. We're looking for one. How about you become our pastor? They would be violating this commandment from 1 Timothy 5. So make sure people are tested and tried. Make sure that they've been faithful. You know, uh, Janice, one of the things that I've, I've told all of my pastors, and you know, we have, I think, eight on staff now, but we've planted like 29 churches over our years here. And every one of those pastors have been really, really tested. Uh, I, I've been watching their lives, watching their hearts. And one of the things that shows me whether or not they're called to be a pastor is their relationship with their wives. So I tell them all, before anybody is even going to be considered for pastoral ministry, I, I'm just going to let you know that I'm going to watch your relationship with your wife for a minimum of six months. And I mean, I'm going to watch it closely. They won't know I'm doing it when I'm doing it. But I'm going to watch it really closely because if a man's harsh with his wife, I don't want him to be in a position of authority with the people that I love. And sometimes we forget God really loves these people, so we need to be sure that people are tested often, Janice. When somebody comes and tells me, well, you know, do you have any pastoral openings? I've been called to be a pastor. And, and I'll give them the opportunity to serve in some, in some really menial ministry. And I, I do that purposely to teach them what a servant really is. And I get to find out who they really are. If they say, yes, I'll do it, and they're faithful, and they remain faithful, and they don't complain because it's not what they're called to do, well, then I know that that's a man, when called to do something, will do it wonderfully. And um, my track record of picking pastors has been pretty darn good over the years. We've missed a couple of times, but for the most part, it's been really, really good to watch people prove they're a pastor. They're called to do something. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Um, just take your time, go slow. Some of the worst mistakes... And I've seen this happen in some of the churches that we've sent out and planted, especially because planting a church is really hard. I mean, there's nobody there. Uh, nobody's waiting for you when you get there. And when you start teaching Bible study, when you start going on the streets and sharing Jesus with people, you start inviting them to your church. It's a brand new church. It doesn't look at all like a church. Um, it's really attractive when somebody who looks to be spiritual, somebody who looks to love Jesus, comes in and says, I'll help you, I'll do anything. And I've had a lot of those men who would appoint elders or leaders in the church and pastors in the church after watching somebody for five or six months and say, okay, you're the one. They have to be tested. You know, Janice, for our first two years here, I didn't even appoint elders. Uh, I didn't do it because I was watching men develop. And I'll never forget the first 
two elders I ever appointed. I did one on one day and the other one on the very next day. I called them. We talked to them, had them talk face to face. And uh, I just said, you know, I, I think the Lord has shown me that I can trust you with the people I love. And so I'd like to make you an elder. Those first two elders are still here elding. And, and neither of them have caused me one moment of, of difficulty. They have become so faithful, so consistent, so dependable. And I think it's because I waited until God said. They were tested. They proved themselves. And I love those men like they're my brothers. And uh, we've added elders to our leadership staff. But for the most part, those first two are really great choices. And they've been doing it now for well over 20 years. Um, and I look around and they just get more and more faithful. So Janice, I hope that makes some sense. It's a long answer to a short question. 340-9585, Janet wants to know, are there other reliable religious sources of truth beyond the Bible? The answer, Janet, is no. Um, anything that contradicts truth, truth is a term that is mutually exclusive. By definition, it means something that is true cannot be um, consistent with something that contradicts that truth. We can't say that's true or it's her truth or his truth. Um, the only reliable source of truth is the Word of God. Jesus, of course, is the truth, but his word is truth. My word is truth. Remember when he was standing before Pilate, and he told Pilate, who thought he had authority over everybody, he said to Pilate, everyone on the side of truth listens to me, and Pilate almost derisively says, what is truth? Well, that same question is the one that's been asked by people throughout the centuries. And the only way we can know what's true is to compare it with the standard for truth, and that's the Word of God. So it's not like if the Bible's true, well, the Koran can be true. They're completely in contradistinction one to the other. Is it true that Joseph Smith or the Watchtower has to tell you what's true? No, the Bible is true. So there are no other reliable religious sources of truth beyond the Word of God. Live it and love it. And, um, you know, at the end of our teaching programs, not this one, but our announcer says, if you fall in love with your Bible, you will fall in love with Jesus. We promise. And that's the promise that I can tell you. Three four zero ninety. Well, we've only got what two minutes now, or three minutes. Here is a question from our email inbox from Hindel. Hi, Hindel. Good to hear from you. Hi, Pastor Ron. In a recent women's Bible study at church, the teacher said that Paul's name hadn't changed from Saul to Paul, as some other Bible characters' names had changed, and Jesus did not change his name. Uh, she said that Saul was simply his Hebrew's name, and Paul was his Roman name. Uh, Hindel, I don't. Uh, I, I, that is not consistent at all with um, uh, Jesus was Paul to the, the Jews, um, the Jews that were trying to kill him. Um, uh, I don't believe that that's consistent with, with the information that we've been given, so I would just respectfully disagree with that teacher. Uh, Saul was his Hebrew name for sure, but Paul was his new life name. Once I was faultless, zealous. Now I'm just little, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, Saul, who thought he was all that, found out he was one of the foolish things of the world that God chose. The weak things, the despised things, the shameful things, even the things that are not. And, and uh, um, you know, I, again, I can't prove this biblically, but, but because the name means little, I think Paul reveled in that name. Um, but um, to make it as simple as 
Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his Roman name. Uh, his name, Jews' names didn't change um, because of the audience change. So uh, I appreciate the comment, and uh, uh, I just I just respectfully disagree. Let me see if we've got time for one more question. i got two minutes. Here is a question. This will be the last one. Um, Anonymous says, is there any reliable way to know for sure if someone is saved or not? Anonymous, I touched on this with the question about Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland. Um, but, but there isn't. And we don't need to know. They need to know, and Jesus knows. Jesus said, many on that day will call him Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. He calls him a doer of evil or iniquity. So we don't have to know. Now, what we can do is look at fruit coming from their lives. And I'm a huge proponent, Anonymous, of when somebody says they're a Christian, I expect them to behave like a Christian. And I've had people over the years come to me and say, uh, come for counseling, and I'd, I'd tell them about Jesus. You need to give your heart to Jesus. Well, well, Pastor, I'm a Christian. And I love when they say that because then I can stop them right there and say, well, how would anybody know based on the way you're living? You see, because they need to know, and Jesus knows, I don't need to know. So all we can do is pray for them and be a witness to them about the goodness of Jesus Christ. But... But if somebody's living like an unbeliever, I always treat them like an unbeliever. If somebody's living like a believer, I always treat them like a believer. And I think that's the most effective way to deal with this. But you don't ever want to get trapped saying, well, I don't think he's really saved or don't think she's really saved. That's a really dangerous place to be. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.